both so much. Thank you, Julia. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you so much for the fact that we can look to you, the author and the finisher of our faith, Lord, the first and the last, the all-sufficient one, God. You are God all by yourself. And we bless you. We love you. We praise you for your faithfulness, God. Lord, in a world with things competing for our attention at record pace, we surrender this morning and ask that you would in fact be our vision. As we come to a passage in Revelation, Lord, we ask that you would help us to see Christ above all else in the word this morning. We commit our ways to you. We commit our praise to you, Lord. We thank you for answered prayer this week with uh, little Bennett Sanders as he has come home and had to, he had to go back in the hospital and and be tended to, and we are grateful for the skill and care that he received, Lord, and we're grateful for answered prayer that he's home recovering. Thank you for Brian being with us today, for safe travel for many of our congregation who are on the road now and some who have been gone for a few weeks and been able to come back this morning. Lord, we're grateful. So much to be grateful for. We bless you now in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Revelation chapter number three, our text this morning, as we are continuing in these pictures of our Redeemer through the book of Revelation. Now, I said this to you by way of video in advance of the first service, and some of you saw that, some of you may not have, but this is not an expository series of the book of Revelation. That's not what's happening. We're not starting in one and going to the end. We're looking at four glimpses of our Redeemer as he is revealed in Revelation. You're studying this in your Bible study groups. In every age range, it's what you're covering for the month of August, the rest of the month. And so that's what we're going to spend some time on as we finish up the summer months here at Grace Covenant. As I think about coming to a book like this, I'm reminded how easy it is to get sidetracked to focus on all sorts of things, even in life, sorts of things that are not very helpful to us in the big picture of things. We like to be in the know. I like to be in the know, do you? I like to stay up to date. The latest information, the greatest information. Uh, some of us like the latest gadgets and toys and only to discover that moments after we make the purchase and get that thing, there's an updated version that everybody's already talking about. We've got the purchase, the download, the read, and it becomes outdated. There are major cultural shifts happening now at such a rapid pace, it's difficult to track, to process, much less to make informed decisions if you're trying to make culturally relevant decisions. If we're not careful, we can spin our wheels and get really worked up working on things, good things, things that look important, but not the main thing. Revelation, the book of Revelation in the Bible is full of opportunities to get focused on the wrong things. I, there's probably a handful of books in the Bible, Revelation, probably Daniel, Ezekiel, with some of this abstract pictures and prophetic apocalyptic scenes that unfold and it's so easy to get fascinated with the smallest of details or the most sensational of descriptions and to miss and think that's what the book is really about, as if the imagery were the main attraction. 
Last week we set out on this journey, and you'll recall we're looking at Jesus, our Redeemer, our glorious Redeemer last week, our reviving Redeemer this week, our worthy Redeemer next week, our returning Redeemer the last Sunday of August. Can I just remind you of something? If you've got your Bibles there, hold your finger in the place where you are. It's not on the screen. Just look back at the first words of Revelation chapter number one, verse one. There are a few important words there, five words that will help inform you. You ready? Here it is. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you see it? The revelation of Jesus Christ. Never lose sight of that pristine fact. This is about Jesus our glorious Redeemer who loves the church and who gave himself for it. He loves us with that never stopping, never ceasing, always chasing after us, rescuing us by placing himself in harm's way kind of love, that chesed love that we've talked about from the Old Testament. That's the kind of love Jesus has and is. Our King is inviting us to see him today through the churches that he will address in this little section of the final book of scripture. Now, I don't want you to miss what's happening in the churches. We are going to look at some of that. We're gonna learn from these churches. We're gonna note the ones that he commends and why he does. It's, we're gonna imitate that to the best of our ability. We're gonna note the ones that he condemns and why he does, and we're not going to imitate that, right? You get it? We're gonna to try to do the good things and not to do the not good things. Evil things, he would call them. But we want to fix our eyes on Jesus in the text. The writer of Hebrews encourages us in this regard. He says, we want to run the race with endurance that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It's an encouragement for us this morning. It's also a caution to us not to get caught up in some of the imagery and some of the subtext, but to remember the main attraction. As believers in Jesus, we are not afraid of the events described in Revelation. As a Christian, I'm not afraid of the events described in Revelation. I'm not. As a lover of God's word, I'm also not scared to read Revelation. You say, well, you're a preacher. Well, I want to tell you my 13-year-old son's favorite book of the Bible is the book of Revelation. What's your favorite book of the Bible? Revelation. Of course it is. If you know Josiah, you, that makes total sense. You don't have to be afraid to read passages of Scripture. The Holy Spirit can help you understand them. You don't have to be afraid of Daniel or Ezekiel or any of them. Remember, Norm reminded us last week from Mark chapter number 13, concerning that day or hour, no one knows. So even if you had a full understanding of this, the angels in heaven nor the Son, only the Father knows the final moment and when it's gonna happen. With that in mind, let's take a glimpse here at our glorious Redeemer in view as the Lord speaks to the churches. Now in chapter two and three, I'm gonna cover this rather quickly. You got a great handout this morning in the adult class, and if you didn't get the paper, it's okay. I love that you guys spend time in prayer. You may not have gotten that. It's available online to download, so you can get this. It's a fantastic little summary of the churches. It's on our website gracecovenant.com, just go to content, it's a PDF right there for you. It's a great summary from there. I wanna just summarize quickly some of the things God says to these other churches so we have context on Revelation. There's seven churches addressed in the book of Revelation. 
you, um, we, we want to review those very quickly. The first church that the Lord begins to speak to is the church at Ephesus. Say Ephesus. It sounds like emphasis, mispronounced, but it's Ephesus. That's right. Here's some of the strengths of the church of Ephesus. You ready for this? They had right theology. They had healthy apologetics. They had right morals. Here were some of the weaknesses. They abandoned the love that they had at first. Kind of a big deal, right? So they were dotting all their I's and crossing all their doctrinal T's, but they had walked away from experiencing and living out that said love that we talked about. Then there's the church at Smyrna. Now, I thought when I was younger, wow, there's a Smyrna, North Carolina. I may have been to the church of Smyrna. Different church. That's not the same place. Smyrna church was rich in faith despite being afflicted and being in great poverty. This church had nothing. They were poor, but they were rich in faith. There was an old gospel song we used to sing. They've been flooding my mind in recent days. I tell you, Miss Willene Lawrence, my mother-in-law who's in heaven now, was probably more eclectic than I am in her music collection. And I'm sure, Teddy Huffam in the gyms, I'm rich in faith and hope and love. I've got more than my share. I'll be moving to a mansion just over in glory where I'm a rightful heir. I love that little line there. Rich in faith they were. Guess what their weaknesses were? None were mentioned. Man. Wouldn't you like to have a church, a little shirt, t-shirt in the day that says, follow me to the church at Smyrna, right? We're one of God's favorites. No. Uh, the next church was the church at Pergamum. Pergamum. Their strengths, they were holding on to Jesus' name and his faith in spite of persecution. But their weaknesses, they were holding, some of them were holding to false teachings and living like lost people. They were living in gross immorality. There was the church at Thyatira. Uh, they were strong in love and faithfulness and service and endurance, but they were tolerating a woman who was a false prophet and teacher who encouraged them to live immor Im immoral ways. Can you imagine that? Churches condoning and encouraging immorality. That was the church at Thyatira. The church at Sardis strengths. A few people had not defiled themselves. I'm I think there might have been a reach there. Like when your strength is that we've got a handful that are living right, I'm not sure you wear the church that says, follow me to the church at Sardis. But nonetheless, that's what's going on. The weaknesses, they were dead inside, but they were pretending to be alive. They had a reputation of being alive. They had all the programs, everything to attract everybody to the location, but they were dead inside. The church at Philadelphia... They kept Jesus' word. They didn't deny his name. Their weaknesses. Here's another church that had no weaknesses listed. Now, before we put up the church that we're about to talk about, it's worth noting that to every single church that had weaknesses, Christ offered the very same solution. Now, we're not talking about minor slip-ups here. We're not talking about, about mistakes or where the elders convened and they made a bad decision about uh, the window panes or about something related to the property or they didn't handle this matter perfectly. No, we're talking about when the church took their eyes off of Jesus as the author and finisher of their faith. When the church began to take liberties with the scripture that they had no authority to take with God's word and God's church and God's people. And to every single church that needed to be rebuked and that needed to come back, the Lord's solution was the same. Here's what he said. Ready? Stop it. Repent and put your eyes on me. Before I even get to 
where we're heading this morning. Can I just say to you, big boy, big girl in the room, you're flirting with sin. Stop it. Repent. Put your eyes on Jesus. Brother in Christ, that website keeps calling you. Stop it. Repent. Put your eyes on Jesus. Whatever your struggle, God has the same instruction for us today as believers. And to those who are outside of the faith, here's what the Lord's saying. Stop trying to run your life your way. Repent. And if you have a desire to do that, that's a good indication. You are coming to Jesus. Well, for the homiletics note takers out there, I've just blown that because I got all the way to the application and I haven't even made it to the first point. Let's get there quickly. Let's look at Laodicea. Now, I mentioned churches that had no weaknesses mentioned. Laodicea had no strengths. It's the only church of the seven churches that were, I mean, he couldn't even reach. I feel like the one, right? You got a few that are living right, that aren't dirty. Like, if that's the best thing you can say, that's like that positive sandwich with molded bread. You know, that's not, that's not going to work. And here at Laodicea, he just lights right into him. We come to this church, but before we even get there, I want you to look at that preamble text here. Let's see who it is that's doing the speaking in Revelation 3.14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, look, who it is that's talking, the words of the amen, see it on the screen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I told you we're going to focus on Jesus this morning, and I'm going to do that right now. Our Redeemer here is described as the amen, the faithful witness, the true witness and the beginning of God's creation, the amen. You've been to churches before where they say that. I remember hearing Pastor D preach a couple times, and he would say, amen, amen. He'd say it twice, and some of you reluctantly would go, amen. We have to say that so he won't say it a third time. Amen, right? It's a way to affirm as the body of Christ and say, yes, that. So let it be done. Yes, we agree with that. Here, the Bible is saying Jesus is the strongest possible affirmation of everything that God had declared. This is our king. Again, the writer of Hebrews would describe him this way. If you're taking notes, jot down Hebrews 1 out beside there. Here's what he says. I love this. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is God's amen. It's pretty awesome. Colossians 1 says the fullness of the Godhead was pleased to dwell in him. 1 Timothy 3 says it's the mystery of godliness is Jesus. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. Paul captures it beautifully in 2 Corinthians. He says all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That's why it's through him that we utter our amen to glory. All right, church, here we go. I'd like to hear a good amen right there. Amen. Jesus is our amen. He's God's amen. He's also described as the faithful witness. Again, the writer of Hebrews says, Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. 
But Christ is faithful, faithful not in God's house, but over God's house as a son. He's our faithful witness. 2 Timothy 2, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. 1 Thessalonians 5, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Watch this, he who calls you is faithful. We talk about faithful spouses in marriages and, and faithful Christians who've journey but faithful spouses are still tempted and still sin and faithful Christians still sin and stumble and bumble and fumble but here's one who didn't this is God's faithful witness the Lord Jesus Christ faithful witness the true witness this isn't just truth to win an argument this isn't your truth or her truth it's the truth Jesus said of himself I am the way the truth and the life no man comes to the Father except through me. What a God. What a Savior. Our God and King. Jesus described some who were following the devil. He said, you're of your father the devil. He's the father of lies. He, he cannot tell the truth in John chapter number 8. And then he says, I am the truth. And if you know the truth, the truth shall set you free. Wow. The beginning of God's creation. This title given to our Redeemer right there. Listen, Christ is not a created being. He is truly God. He exists outside of time and space as we know it as an eternally existent member of the Trinity. He was before the beginning, but he was at the beginning. He was there all the time, in all times. He was there. Jeremiah said, a glorious throne set on high from the beginning, speaking of our God. The Bible says in John chapter number one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Wow, what a preamble. Somebody just poked their neighbor and said, is he gonna do this with every verse? He's not. I'm trying to focus on Jesus, okay? What a savior, what a redeemer. Jesus is God's amen to himself. Jesus is the only faithful witness he's the only true witness and Jesus was there before the beginning that's why John says he alone is the main attraction of all creation Wow! and because he's God we can trust what he says and we can trust what he starts with this church I want to remind you that this tough text that was read to us just a moment ago is a text read to the church not lost people living undone to the church. Your first point this morning, it's like, first point, what? It's okay, just three quick headers for you. Our Redeemer knows us. Our Redeemer knows us. Some of you that may make nervous, it's okay. He still loves you. <laughs> he knows every thought you've ever had, every deed you've ever done, every word you've ever said, even the ones you didn't have the courage to say, and he still loves you with that never-ending, never-stopping, chasing after you, putting himself in harm's way kind of love. He loves you when you don't treat your little sister right. Not that that happens with any Grace Covenant families, I know. He loves you when your brothers have gotten on your last good nerves and you raise your voice and shouldn't do that. Not that that happens with any Grace Covenant family. And I'm talking about adults, y'all, right? No, okay. God loves you. He knows us, though, doesn't he? Look at the verse, what the first thing he says here, I know your works, he says to the church. 
I'm not reading your PR sheet. I'm not reading your website. I'm not reading your great pamphlet that you've put out all over town. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. I would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's nobody's memory verse that I know of. I've never heard anybody say, what's your life verse? Revelation 3, 15 and 16, something about spit. <laughs> I haven't heard it. King James, I think, said spew. Was that, that was a good one. Vomit, that's in them too. Let's just take all the words, yeah. Just kidding. He knows us too. He knows what's up. So what's up with Laodicea? Why this text about them? What is hot, cold, all that got to do? Laodicea was located approximately 600 miles northwest of Jerusalem. Two major trade routes intersected there. The city was wealthy. It was a commercial center. It was the richest in the region. It was known for banking, the manufacturing of clothing, like black wool. Can you imagine? I, I, even when I read that note, I was hot. It was like 1,000 degrees outside. The humidity is 9,000%. And I just started sweating when I read black wool, right? Black wool? Wool. No wonder people are throwing up. Sorry. A famous medical school was there with ointment for the eyes that was just uh, believed to be like this healing salve for the eyes. It was a great school for ears and eyes, actually. The city was so wealthy that it rebuilt itself completely without any money from Rome in AD 60 after a major earthquake had destroyed the region. They saw themselves as completely self-sufficient as a city. They didn't need the help of anyone, not even a home city. They didn't need the help of God. They were fine all by themselves, and that began to infect the church. Despite its prosperity, listen, the city had one major weakness, its water. It had no convenient source for good drinking water. The two cities that fed their water supply by means of aqueducts, one city uh, was the hot springs that were in Heropolis. So Heropolis is here with hot springs coming down to the city. And then Colossae, right, Colossians, Colossae was here, and they were known for this very cold springs that they had, refreshing cold water that would also feed the city. Guess what? By the time the water that was hot arrived in the city from Heropolis, it was lukewarm. It had cooled. And by the time the really cold water from Colossae had arrived through the desert to this city, it had warmed to lukewarm. The poor drinking water was so distasteful that visitors not prepared for the tepid flavor would often vomit after drinking it. I promise it's the last time I'll say vomit here. Sorry this morning. What'd your pastor preach on this morning? <laughs> you don't want to know. So you get this water supply. It's a major thing. For most of us, water is refreshing. This whole city was like, whew, I'm thirsty. Get psyched up. Get something to drink. All right, y'all pray for me. I'm going to get a drink of water. Ooh. Right? It's a big deal. It's a major thing everybody in the city knew about, talked about. For us, it's like, that's a weird illustration. For them, it made perfect sense. Jesus goes on to say here, I don't have the verses on the screen, it's fine, but if you look on in the text, he's saying, you say that you prospered and you need nothing, realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Can I just touch those words for a moment? When he used the word for wretched, he's describing a ravaged land, I mean, that's a major insult. It's like going to a landscaper's house and going, can you not get anybody to take care of your grass? I mean, it's like the landscaper, <gasps> like that. It's, it's a major insult, and it's meant to be one. It's meant to sting pitiful, 
pitiable, the object of extreme, extreme pity. Every city envied Laodicea. Uh, Laodicea. And he's saying, oh, people pity you. Poor, extreme poverty, like a beggar was the word that he used. That's a slap at the city that bragged about its wealth. Blind, it was a dig at their medical center, that ophthalmological, uh, I say that fine, ophthalmic school, ophthalmic school? It's here, clearly, I'll show you the notes later. Uh, And famous for the eye powder that they put in their eyes. Naked, he was ridiculing them because they made clothing. I mean, he was attacking every industry they held on to and even the church held on to. And it stung. Vance Havner, that prince of preachers from Chapel Hill, North Carolina, said it this way. Smyrna was a rich, poor church and Laodicea was a poor, rich church. Laodicea was blind, short-sighted, no vision of God, no vision of their own hearts and no vision of the world needs. And then he summarized it this. Watch this. I'd rather be a rich, poor Christian than a poor, rich Christian. You see that? I had to say that like 10 times to myself to make sure I didn't mess it up when I read it to y'all. But he's saying, I'd rather have nothing that this world looks at as wealth and have everything I need in Christ than to have everything this world looks at as wealth and a lukewarm Christianity. Our Redeemer knows us and our Redeemer counsels us. He counsels us. Look at verses 18 and 19 quickly. He says, I counsel you to buy gold from me, refined by fire. I counsel you to do this so that you may be rich. Buy white garments. And he goes through this list. We've already read that. What is this counsel for his deceived church? What is he advising them to do? He's saying, come to me. Come to me. I have everything you need. Come to me. I have everything you need. You need me to meet your needs, not the world. Not yourself. Turn from all of this pretending and come to me. I'm here to tell you, brother, sister, this morning. Stop trying to fill those needs that you have in your life with what the world has to offer. Jesus is saying to you this morning, come to me. Come to me. In Mark chapter number 8, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If you lose your life from what this world considers being losing your life, you're giving all that kind of life up for me, he says you're going to gain life. He says, I have everything you need. Philippians 4, I'll supply all of your need according to my riches in glory. Turn from all this pretending. Jesus would say to the crowd one day, turn, accept you, repent. You're going to perish. It's going to destroy you. Come to me. If you start trying to drink from this source or that source or start trying to figure everything out on your own and make it work by this method and that method and try to mix it all together, you're going to wind up in a mess. Come to me. Do it my way. I want to give you life abundantly, not life that makes you sick or worse, makes me sick. Our Redeemer knows us. He counsels us. But I want you to look at his tender mercy in this final passage. He invites us. What? Revelation 3, 20 through 22. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, we use that passage a lot in evangelism. I think it does capture some of the meaning of that passage. I'm not saying it's inappropriate necessarily, But the context is not for somebody lost responding to Jesus. 
This is a sad, I, I hate to say this, this is actually way sadder than that. This is Jesus standing at the door of the church where he should be the main attraction, asking if he can come in and be a guest. You catch that? Our Redeemer that knows us and counsels us is inviting us to sup with him. The one who conquers, he'll grant to sit on his throne. If you have an ear, hear what I'm saying to you. Such a tender invitation from our Redeemer to a church that made him sick. And he's still gentle. Direct, fully in charge, but extending an invitation. Now, for most of my life, I've heard this text preach. I wish that you were cold or hot, and because you're neither cold nor hot, you hear my preacher voice coming out, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth, right? So you either get on fire for God this morning, or you turn and run the other way. I get the logic. I don't necessarily think the text supports that. I can't envision this Redeemer telling his church to openly rebel against him. I don't think that fits the narrative of Scripture. It sounds good at camp meeting, and I'd probably still amen it if a preacher said it in the right tone of voice, I'd just be honest. But, but can I just tell you, maybe, maybe, if you think back with me to those sources of water, people traveled from all around to experience the hot medicinal waters that bubbled up in Heropolis. There was healing in those springs. People today still travel to hot springs for great benefits. People traveled from all around to the city of Colossae for the cold, pure waters there to be refreshed and revived, to jump into those almost icy waters at times. It was like a wake-up call to their vital organs, bathing in those cold waters. I think our Lord pointing to these waters may have meant something like this. Laodicea, you're not a place of healing for the spiritually sick. You're not a place of refreshment for the spiritually thirsty. You're spiritually lukewarm, tepid, and you're not useful. And I'm not going to tolerate that. I'm not going to tolerate you claiming to be a church misrepresenting the life-changing power of the gospel and the refreshment and the healing that the gospel brings. I'm the God who makes dead things come to life. I'm the God who saves to the uttermost. I'm the Redeemer who takes the hopeless cases. Behold, I'm making all things new. Does that sound lukewarm to you? It doesn't to me. I mentioned that I salve that Laodicea was known for. Jesus offered one too. Remember, he said, come, buy from me this salve for your eyes. Here's an assessment I found in my studies that I thought was helpful to us this morning as I close. Which do you view as more pressing, a more urgent activity in your day-to-day? Reading or watching the news? Or reading or studying the Bible? Obviously, both are valuable, but on a day-to-day basis, if you could only do one, which do you pick? If you only had time to do one thing or the other and your choices were between taking time to pray or checking up on your social media feed or your email, personal email, which do you choose? You've only got time for one. 
If you could choose between a lottery ticket with a guaranteed win of a billion dollars, Ted, we could replace some windows for that. Guaranteed win of a billion dollars or an empty bank account with the assurance that God would provide for you and meet your needs if you would trust him. Which would you choose? Would you choose to have more money than you could ever spend or would you choose to have the opportunity to trust God? Lastly, which would you choose? To have all your hopes and dreams realized in the American political scene by seeing all of your candidates elected and all of your political issues dealt with the way you want them handled or the opportunity to identify yourself as an alien and a stranger for whom this world is not our home. When we're revived by our Redeemer, we will fire the Laodicean ophthalmologist and we will see things differently because Jesus will touch our eyes. Musicians are coming now. We're going to have a moment to respond to the text. Let me show you a picture of a healing and refreshing church. The healing and refreshing church, the Bible shapes our thinking, not culture. In a healing and refreshing church, prayer is non-negotiable. In a healing and refreshing church, we trust Jesus more than money. In a healing and refreshing church, we ultimately identify with the kingdom of God, not a movement or a political party. I wonder this morning, what do you need to stop, repent, and look at Jesus? While Julia prays, take a moment and ask the Lord to do some of that surgical work on your heart that the Holy Spirit does so well as we respond to the text. Let's pray. Father, you know us this morning. You have counsel for us this morning. And you're inviting us this morning to come to you. You know everything about us and you're asking us to come, inviting us to come. Lord, I pray for that one that's here this morning, maybe two that don't know you as Lord and Master and Savior. Lord, and here you are speaking to the church, but so much of this can apply to them as well. Lord, that they would stop trying to run their lives their own way. They would repent and put their faith and trust in you as you're dealing with their heart, Lord, and follow you to see what living life is all about. For those of us who this week will be wrestled by this text as we reflect and take time in your word, I pray that you do a deep and abiding work in us and that we would never tolerate lukewarm Christianity in our own lives, like that contemporary song says. 
I don't want to be, I don't want to be a casual Christian. We refuse to live a lukewarm life. Help us to be healing and refreshing to everyone we come into contact with. We ask these things in the power of the name that is above every name, the name Jesus Christ, our glorious and reviving Redeemer. Let the church say amen. Amen. Let's stand together and lift our voices in song.